0: Hebrews chapter 12, as we started a brand new chapter in our verse-by-verse study of Hebrews, and I've entitled our message today, Looking Unto Jesus, Looking Unto Jesus. So in chapter 11, we were studying the hall of faith, so encouraging, person after person after person, faithful men and women, running the race that was set before them, and they finished well. They had no Bible no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no baptism of the Spirit, no technology, no New Testament, no new covenant, but they endured and they ran their race and they finished. And how did they finish? By faith. The same way you and I are going to finish. We may have all these extra things they didn't have, but we're going to finish the same way. We're going to finish by faith. And now their lives... Their true stories, their victories, revive our souls and encourage our weary hearts. They made it, and because they made it, I can make it too. So let's pick up in chapter 11, verse 39, for the sake of some context. And remember, the chapter breaks and the verses were added much later. So when this was written, you just read it straight through. So notice chapter 11, verse 39, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're going to learn today how to run the race. We've already learned that we're in a race. When you and I were born again, we immediately entered into the race of faith. Our life changed. And now our motive For living is to please the Father. And Paul, the author of Hebrews, uses this picture, this metaphor to describe our life. And it's described as a race. Now remember, this race isn't typically run like we normally would think, where we're in a race and the whole goal is to win it and beat everyone else. It's not the way that we're running this race. You know, like if you were running a typical race and you were running along and you saw someone s- slip or fall or trip up a little bit, you're kind of thinking, oh, too bad for them. And you run as fast as you can because it gives you a little bit of an advantage. Well, there's no such thing as advantage in when it comes to the race of life. If you see in this race, this race of faith, somebody stumble, you don't keep running. You stop. You go and help them. Because in this race of life, it's not winning that's the motive, it's finishing. And it's not just finishing, it's finishing with as many other people as possible. The people that you connect with. So today we're going to learn at least eight things that are going to help you run your race. Their instructions, their admonitions, their commands. These are things you and I must do as we run this race of life. Start out in verse one where it says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. This is encouraging. We're reminded right away that as we're running this race, we're not alone. We have this cloud of witnesses. Now don't think of this as a stadium filled with saints all around us cheering us on. As if like in the clouds, all those men and women that died before us are just cheering us on. Come on, you can do it. No, here the encouragement comes in our lives as we consider the many men and women that ran their race well. You know, when you're interpreting something, when you have to ask a question, well, who is this cloud of witnesses? When you ask a question of the Bible, you need to answer it within the context of where it was written. Context. That's so important with the Bible. If you don't pay attention to context, Then you're gonna make the Bible, or you have a you have the possibility of making the Bible say something that it doesn't say. And you know people that do that all the time. They take a verse out of context. Context is very important. So in order to discover the context, you stay right where it's written and you look what was said beforehand and you look what was said afterward, and usually 99% of the time, you'll be able to gain what the meaning of that verse is. So when we look at this, this one's an easy one. When you think of this cloud of witnesses, the context is very clear. If you look beforehand, it's the entire chapter 11 of Hebrews. So the context of this cloud of witnesses are all those men and women in the hall of faith that finish their race well. That's the interpretation. The application, now that we know that there are people that have gone before us, the application is, well, there's a lot of people that cheer us on, that encourage us as we think of their example. You know, some of you have grandparents, great-grandparents. Some of your parents encourage you that have gone before you, finish their race well. The whole Bible is filled with true believers that have faced great adversity, but still finish their race by faith. They're our motivation. This is what moves us. We're to run the race like they did. Always trusting, never giving up. Like one commentator put it, and I quote, they knew how to run the race of faith. They opposed Pharaoh. They forsook the pleasures and prerogatives of his court. They passed through the Red Sea. They shouted down the walls of Jericho. They conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, received back their dead by resurrection, were tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, and had to dress in animal skins. They were made destitute, all for the sake of their faith. And their witness is ex- are examples to us. They're not just mere onlookers, they're examples. And they have proved their testimony. They proved by their testimony, they have proved by their witness that the life of faith is the only way to live life. In these first couple verses, we learn how to run wisely so that you too will be a great testimony to others so that your life as well will encourage others, others that you may never meet, you may never know that your life encouraged, but because you've run your race well, you encourage others. So there are eight things here listed if you're taking notes. Number one, in running your race, number one, lay aside every weight. You must lay aside every weight. Now this makes sense, especially with this picture of running. A person that's in a race doesn't add weight to themselves when they're running. They do the exact opposite. They want to be as light as possible. I think of those racing on bicycles or motorcycles. They try to make them as light as possible. They create new composites and things so that not only are they the lightest, but they're also the most aerodynamic. Why? Because they want to go as fast as they can with the least amount of effort. And so it is with your life and mine. You must lay aside the weights that are holding you back spiritually. You have to lay aside those things that aren't helping you run your race. That aren't helping you please the Father. Anything that weighs us down, diverts our attention, saps our energy, waters down our passion has to go. This is non-negotiable. These eight things are non-negotiable. As you look at them and examine your life. See, that's the point. You, I think the whole banner of this section is this. You need to learn to examine your life regularly. I know people are sent into your life to tell you, hey man, this isn't right brother, this isn't right sister. And then you get all defensive and you go, oh, you can't tell me. Well, you know what? Nobody would have to tell you if you'd examine your own life. Then God would never send anybody to you. You wake up in the morning and you go, hey, Lord, where am I with you? I am open to your spirit. And God says, here, you got to lay this aside. You know the problem is. You don't want to lay anything aside. You want to run your race your way. But see, it's not your race. It's God's race. He's enlisted you, and you have been put into the race, not just for yourself, but for others. We need to lay aside every weight. Number two, we also need to lay aside, notice in verse one, the sin that so easily ensnares us. We need to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. Look, the weights in life are just bothersome and bulky. They get in the way. They trip us up. They make things harder. But sin, sin stops the race completely. It arrests your progress. You will not make progress holding on to sin, known sin in your life. I'm not talking about the everyday stumbles that we have and difficulties. You know, we we repent, we get back up and run. But when you hold on to known sin, and you don't lay it aside, that that means you acknowledge it, you repent, and you forsake it, then you're going to have a hard time running your race if you're running even at all. All sin is a hindrance to Christian living. All sin. But I want you to notice carefully back in verse 1, he says, lay aside every weight, and notice, and the sin. There is a specific sin that you need to watch out for. All sin is going to hinder you. We got to deal with it all. But there is a specific sin that you and I must watch out for. It's the sin, particular sin. And you think, well, what could that be? Once again, we get the answer to that in context. And I believe looking at the context, this particular sin is referring to the sin of unbelief. That's what we've been studying in chapter 11. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. You can't please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without all that. By faith, the sin that you really need to watch out for is the sin of unbelief. I guess you could put it this way. The cradle of all other sin is unbelief. Sin is birthed. Other sins are birthed in the sin of unbelief. Think about it. The whole world was plunged into sin by unbelief. That's what happened to Eve. God gave her a word and she didn't believe it, which made her vulnerable to believe the lies of the devil, which led her to be tempted, which led her to sin. And the whole thing was repeated with Adam. And through Adam's sin, the whole world was plunged into sin. It's the same progress that you and I see. Unbelief, a lack of trusting in God, will get us all in trouble. If there's one specific sin that hinders the race of faith, it's unbelief. It's doubting God, not believing God at his word. And unbelief trips up more believers than just about any other sin. Lacking that submittive trust in the Lord. Let me give you number three. How are we to run this race? Number three. We're to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. By the way, that word ensnare, if you like to write in your Bibles, means trap. The idea is that you are trapped, uh, you know, kind of like you know, maybe falling into a hole and you can't get out, or maybe a bear trap that grabs a hold of your leg and you'll never get out of it. It traps you. And then here, number three, let us run with endurance, the race that's set before us. We need to run with endurance. Now there's a couple things here that you see. Number one, you need to run the race. You need to run your race. And this is important for us to grasp because every one of us have our own unique relationship with Jesus Christ individually. You notice you're supposed to run the race that's set before you. So this has everything to do with contentment. And just knowing God, I I guess you could put it this way. You, you You have been given a lane in your race and you need to stay in your lane. You need to stay in your lane. I know there are times when you wish you had that person's race, and you wish you had that person's race, and why are they over there? And I want that lane, and I don't like my lane. But God says, I want you to run your race. Your race. You're not supposed to run someone else's race. It's your race. It's your walk with the Lord. It's your ability to relate to God on a personal level. And notice, you're to run your race with endurance endurance. And this is the familiar word that has been repeated multiple times in our study. It's the Greek word hupomone. It means to bear under, up under the weight of a circumstance. It doesn't speak so much in describing in the Bible of bearing up and enduring people, but rather things or circumstances or difficulties. People might be the author, origin of them, but it's a, you have need in this race of life to endure. Well, notice back in chapter 10. Just turn back a page or two in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. This was the last time we looked at this word. Where Paul tells the Hebrews when they're tempted to go away, they're tempted to walk away, they're tempted to backslide, they're tempted to turn their back on Jesus. Here's what he tells them. He tells them and he tells us. For you have need of endurance. It's the same word. So that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Again, if you like to write in your Bibles, you can circle that word endurance and you can write next to it persistence. You need to run your race persistently. You could also write next to it determination. You need to run this race, your race, staying in your lane persistently and with determination. I think of the time that Jesus spoke about that persistent widow. She would not give up. She would not back down. Persistence, determination. Also the idea is bearing up under pressure. And I know pressure is increasing and increasing and increasing because life is challenging. When we run our race, it's hard, and it's challenging, and it's difficult. We need to learn to bear up under the load, to persevere. It speaks of a constancy and a continual progress. It it has the idea of learning how to wait on God. But not only waiting on God, a cleaving to Him and His will for your life. And not only a cleaving, but an endurance. An endurance. A brave resistance that honors God. Here's one of the Greek uh, dictionary's definitions, and I quote, It simply means to hold out. The concept of the courageous endurance which defies evil. Unlike patience, so comparing to the word patience, it has an active content to it. It includes active and energetic resistance to hostile power. Though no assertion of success is guaranteed. So you resist and you resist and you resist and you might even feel like I'm making no progress Well, you're learning to endure. You could put it this way. Endurance is at the center of the Christian's life in every facet. Endurance is at the center of the life of the believer. It's the decision that you won't cave in and you won't quit. And you won't run away. And you won't abandon your family or your friends. You won't choose to fall to the schemes of the wickedness of the evil, of the enemy and all his evil. You won't retreat in fear. You won't run away. Every single believer that's ever run away has come to the same conclusion. They're running away from their problems only to find out that they were the problem and everywhere they went, there were more problems. If we had an opportunity, for those of you that have run away, and you came up and shared testimony, you'd share the same thing. I thought I was getting away from the difficulty, but I took it with me. And when I arrived at my destination, I found out it was just as hard there as it was where I ran from. And even worse, because now it's more, I'm involving more people and more problems and more difficulties. No, the answer is not to run away. It's to stand fast. That's the believer's call. And that's the word of God to someone listening. Here in the room, maybe online, on the radio, God has spoken to you. You've been praying and asking God, what's going on, God? What's happening in my life? And the word of God to you is hupomone. Never forget it. You won't forget that word. I mean, you, you just don't go to Safeway and say, can I have a loaf of bread and milk and give me some hupomone? You don't do that. Because hupomone comes from God. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It comes as you choose, like Jesus said, to abide in Him. (laughs) When you and I abide in Christ, even as Pastor Ian was leading us today and he asked us to raise our hands and surrender in a very real way to give things, or to speak things that we just need to surrender. Choosing to abide, the Bible, Jesus promises, if we abide in Him, He abides in us. And it's in that relationship that power, spiritual power is infused into your life and mine. It's not our own. It, it's not how the world teaches. Be careful. It's not how the world teaches. Just, just bite your lip and just make it. Just, just wait till it passes. No, no, for the believer, the believer understands it may never pass. But we trust the God who helps us. <laughs> it may never pass. You know, some of you are waiting for something to pass. You're waiting. Well, you know what? My hope is it's going to get, it's going to get better. No, the Bible actually says it's going to get worse. Well, well my hope is, is this is going to pass. And another few years, well, no, no, no. Your hope is in the wrong place. Your hope can only be, true hope can only be placed in Jesus Christ. That's it. If you're hoping in a circumstance or a situation to come, you're living in perpetual disappointment. Because your hope is in the Lord. Hope is a person, not an activity. Number four. Notice this. How do we run our race? Well, we run, number four, in verse two there, looking unto Jesus. You might want to circle that word looking. It means it's a unique word in the New Testament, and it means to stare it means to stare and you know what it's like to stare you know how people have stared at you before and how it's un- uncomfortable and you know that you've accidentally or on purpose stared at other people before and you just lock your eyes on and you don't move and that's what he's saying here you want to make it through this race you want to be in a best in a better position lock your eyes on jesus Lock your eyes on Jesus Christ. There are a couple words in the New Testament that, that are translated look. One of them is the Greek word blepo, and it just means to quickly glance. You kind of look, and you kind of look, and your eyes bounce. Another word is the word oidos, and when, have, when that word is used, it's used to describe looking with the goal of understanding what you're looking at. This is much deeper. This word is much deeper. It means to fix your eyes and don't move them at all, so look steadfastly. It also has the idea of fixing your mind, not just eyes, but fixing your mind. It's very similar to what I was speaking to a new believer recently, and one of the questions that they asked was, how do I read the Bible? And I know a lot of people, when they read the Bible like any other book, open it up, first page, Genesis, work through, kind of make it through Genesis, don't quite understand it all, make it through Exodus, kind of, you know, and then you get to Leviticus and you go, what? what is this? And so I do believe you want to read through the whole Bible, but when you're first starting, you start not back in Genesis, although I'm not saying not to read Genesis, but you want to start in the Gospel of John. You want to start in John, and then when you're done with John, you want to go to the book of Mark, and then when you're done with Mark, you want to go to the book of Luke, and then when you're done with Luke, you want to go into Matthew, Once again, I don't know why they put them in this order, because Matthew is the most challenging gospel, because it connects you back to all the Old Testament. You see, each of the gospels had a purpose. And by the way, gospels, when I refer to gospels, those are the first four books in the New Testament, the second half of your Bible on the right-hand side. It starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I gave you a new order. You start with John because John was written to build your faith. He said it straight up. I've written these things so you might believe. So when you're reading John with the motive of just hanging out with Jesus, the most important thing of your life is to know. When you say, when I, when I tell you look unto Jesus, then the only way that you can truly look to Jesus is to know him personally. And how do you know him personally? You follow along of what's been revealed about him in the Gospels. And John will build your faith automatically. That's why it was written. And I want you when you read John, and it's not just for new believers, I want you when you read John to actually put yourself with Jesus. I mean, be there with him when he was with the woman at the well. Uh, and imagine in your own mind what it would be like to be right in that moment listening to Jesus, watching how he dealt, what was his personality, his temperament. I, I want you to be there in John 17 when he's praying out loud, and you're listening to him pray and you're encouraged. Your faith will be built up as you watch what He says, what He does, and how He does it. When you're done with John, you go over to Mark. Mark was written, so you see Jesus as a consummate servant. And it's just all kinds of action as Jesus was actively serving. And it'll minister to your heart. Not only did Jesus come to serve, but He, gave, he came to give His life a ransom for many, Mark ten forty five. When you're done with Mark, then you jump into Luke and you're following Jesus around as the perfect human. This is God in human flesh. You know, you're an imperfect human, but as you watch Jesus as the perfect human, it encourages you as, again, you listen to him teach and you watch his illustrations. And then finally you come to Matthew, and Matthew's going to connect you back with the Old Testament, and you learn that Jesus came to fulfill all of the Old Testament, that he is the promised Messiah. That, that he fulfilled the promises of God. And together, you just spend some time there because you really are gonna have a hard time looking to Jesus if you don't know him. It's gonna be very difficult to run your race. Who am I running this for? Why am I running this? You see, the, the important, it's important to know Jesus because the world in which you live is anti-God. This culture, the, the atmosphere of this world, the way they think, the, what they do, is anti-God. Let me give you a better phrase. I'll give you a biblical phrase. This culture is anti-Christ. They not only take a position against God, they also take a position to replace God in your life. You could say this. A better way of looking at it is that the thought process, the way things are done in this world, the worldview of the way they see the world, those apart from Christ, they see it in a secular humanistic way where man is the center of everything. So that's where the schools teach. That's the way you might have been raised. That's what the movies portray. That's what music portrays. It's all about satisfying yourself. Getting as much as you can. The philosophy of this world is all about you. You're the center. You're accountable to no one. Do whatever you want. Do whatever pleases you. As long as you don't hurt anyone, do whatever you want. But at the same time, this secular worldview says, well, you're the judge of whether you hurt anyone. So there you go, making all your decisions, saying, well, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. And there are hurting people all around you because they have replaced God and they're anti-God. You and I, when we were born again, our worldview immediately changed, and now we see life from a biblical perspective. I I mean, I hope you do. I know a lot of believers say they do, and a lot of believers don't live that way, that you really don't filter your decisions between what the Bible says, he says, no, the, it, some of the things that you guys are into, some of the things that you're doing, some of the things you you got going on are absolutely against the Bible. And so in that case, you don't have a biblical worldview. You're not willing to submit your life and change your life according to the teachings of the Word. Now I'm not talking about the teachings of some pastor. I'm not talking about, like, whatever the Bible says, you and I should be doing it. It's as simple as that. That's what, when you run your race, you look to Jesus. You filter, the filter, you know, the worldview, the filter of your life should be the Word of God as it's revealing the character and nature of God. I was thinking, you know, I I love this illustration because when I take my glasses off, everything is completely blurry. I can't see a thing. I mean, I know there are people here, but I can't recognize one face in this room right now. But when I place my glasses on, I see everything through the lens of my glasses. Everything's clear as day. Now, I meant to bring an old pair in, because I have old pairs in my office at home, that if I chose to take that old pair and put them on, I would see everything. I had no choice but see everything through that old pair. It's an old prescription. So things would be partially, they would be partially blurry. But I have a new prescription right now. This is the latest one. I see everything crystal clear through these. These crystal clear latest prescription glasses represent keeping my eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. When I look unto Jesus, I see things clearly. What I choose to put in front of my eyes, how I choose to feed my ears, will help me see things either clearly or blurry. Listen, seeing things clearly represent the way that God desires you to see them. Not your opinions, not, not what you feel But rather, when I put this on, I can't see anything except through the lens of these glasses. Looking unto Jesus means very much the same thing. You won't be able to see anything in your life except through the lens of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where life change comes. God working on the inside, you cooperating on the outside, obediently. We look unto Jesus we look unto Jesus. Think of all the things that take our eyes off of Jesus. Think of all the things that want our attention. Money, relationships, sports, retirement, politics, opinions, raises, houses, cars. Sometimes these things even become the end goal of a person. But there's a race that you and I are running. It's a spiritual race. And our eyes cannot be diverted off of Jesus. We need to stare at him. That's where we get our equilibrium, even in the midst of suffering. You know, when you experience great pain, great grief, when you experience great loss, you get disoriented. You don't begin to see, you see things differently. I like to describe it like anyone that's ever been punched in the gut and you lose your breath. Everything doesn't matter except getting your breath back. And that's how suffering is and how pain is. You get punched in the gut, and then sometimes you get kicked while you're down, and you're just like, stop, stop. How do you get your equilibrium back? How do you get oriented again? Looking unto Jesus. Focused. He gives that point of reference that's needed in a very difficult life. It's, too many, it's true that too many believers are preoccupied with themselves, and not necessarily sinfully, but just practically by habit. Jesus warned us in Luke 21, verse 34, it says, take, Jesus said, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. We must make a concerted, dedicated, daily decision to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit choosing to look to Jesus. Number five, he now develops this. He says, number five, we also run this race by looking unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. We're to look to him as the author and finisher of our faith. He's the supreme example of our faith. He is the author. This word speaks of the originator, the pioneer, the one who begins and takes the lead. He originated all of faith. He originated all the faith in chapter 11. He originated all the faith in our lives. And everything begins with Jesus. You, when you were born again, everything began there in your life. Prior to that, the Bible describes us as being dead in our trespasses and sins. It describes us as being separated from God. It describes us of being spiritually blind. It's like we were lost as lost could be the author Jesus, when you were born again, that's when the clock started going forward in this race. He's the author. But notice he's also the finisher. So when you're looking to him, you're reminded he started it, because that's for everyone that doubts their salvation at times. You go, man, I'm so bad. I'm so horrible. Maybe I'm not even saved. Well, look unto Jesus. He started it. And then this is also for the people that go, I don't think I'm going to make it, man. I'm done. I'm going to quit. I don't want to run anymore. Well, you look to Jesus as the finisher. He's going to get you through. He's going to take you to the finish line. And you just want to be in such a way where you don't disqualify yourself along the way. Remember in our last study, I mentioned a personal heavy desire on my heart. I don't want to be One of those pastors that you wake up one day and and the headline is there another pastor in Denver thrown to the wayside because of some sin, some disqualifying sin. I don't. I want to live a life above reproach with all my heart. I don't want to hurt anybody in the role that God has entrusted to me. But when you know it, this week I woke up to a headline of a very prominent, successful blessed pastor who had such a great influence on the next generation who disqualified himself because of sexual sin and some other sins that aren't to be named among a pastor. And it broke my heart. That doesn't make me happy to read that. God was using this guy in a huge way. Yeah, he's a part of another church that does things a little different than us. Great. God was using him in such a huge way. And as you read, as he takes responsibility, which I'm really grateful because as you take responsibility and repent, God begins to work restoration right then and there. Yeah, people are hurt. we are pray, and I will in a moment, pray for the church that woke up without a pastor today and came to service and all the young people looking at him. You know, the enemy loves to use these things to destroy and, and take out people, and it just breaks my heart. And I know this brother will be back. I'm confident of it. But for now, his wife is hurt. Embarrassed and shamed and all of the enemy just wanting to destroy life. Today, like him, we need to wake up and remember he authored. And even in this gross immorality, he's the finisher. I think of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Where Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began the work. When you are running this race, you've got to look to Jesus and just remember, He started it, He'll finish it. Number six. Number six, we also need to look to Jesus for the joy. It says, He's the author and finisher of our faith, verse two, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before Him. Number six is that joy. We run our race with joy, not misery, Yes, it's hard, yes, it's challenging, but for Jesus, I think that joy that's referred to here specifically was you and me. He ran the race thinking of us. He went to the cross thinking of your forgiveness and mine. We know that he prayed for us. We know that he thought of us. And here he is to the, going to the cross with joy. And the joy of the Father is your salvation and mine. That we can run this race with joy because that joy is in front of us too. God's promises are sure. Your life is gonna affect so many more people and it's a joyful thing to know that we're in this race. Number seven, not only that, we run this race looking unto Jesus that he endured the cross, despising the shame. So we're looking at hupomone and we're going, man, I need this endurance. Well, look to Jesus. He went all the way. He finished what he started. And here we are, running, ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel, upset at Christianity, upset at believers. What's happened to the church? What's happened to our world? What's happened while I'm done with it? you got to get your eyes back on Jesus. You've got to look to him. Can you imagine what Jesus endured for you and me? He endured. I mean, and he despised the shame. All the things that have ever happened to you. I mean, think about it. People lied about you. People talk behind your back. Uh, They make fun of you. They take advantage of you. They steal from you. Whatever it might be. And you think, well, wait a minute. What about Jesus? Jesus was lied about. He was mistreated. He was beaten. I mean, remember at his trial? Not only did they lie about him, but they hired people as witnesses to lie about him. I mean, it was so bad that they hired liars to lie at his trial. And then he stood before an innocent man. And what did the government do? The government condemned him not only as guilty, but the government condemned him to death. Shamefully. He was put in the same category as murderers and terrorists, Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He kept taking those steps toward the cross. And he laid down before the Roman soldiers, and they beat him. and they, What we know as scourging. Two Roman soldiers on either side with full force beating the back of a man. Scourging was such a horrible beating that most men either died from the scourging or they confessed to a crime that they never committed so they could get out of it. Most men didn't make it through the scourging to the cross. Jesus endured the beatings, every one of them, and went to the cross. What happened at the cross? They spit in his face. Spit in his face. They put a crown of thorns, not the little thorns on the rose bushes, but huge thorns. You go to Israel with us, we'll show you. They fashioned a crown and twisted it into his skull. This is a man that's already beaten beyond recognition. They nail him into a wooden cross. They take his clothes off and they rip them down. And right before him, as he's in agony, they're gambling for his clothes. And those that followed him all these years, they abandoned him to loneliness on the cross. And the only people there were the Roman guards and the two criminals on either side of him. Oh, you've been betrayed? Somebody turned their back on you, lie to you, lie about you, come against you? We are introduced to a man by the name of Judas. He was one of the 12 closest men that spent three years of his life serving, loving, caring with Jesus. And for a few dollars, he not only betrayed Jesus, he betrayed Jesus to murderous death. When you look to Jesus, what he endured for you and for me, It reminds you of the price that was paid for you to be in the race. For you to be in the race. It didn't come easily. For you to be in the race. Oh, I know life is hard. I know people say things. I know people post things. I know people do bad things. I know they hurt. I know... I hear it in your life, I've experienced it in my life, and so what do we do? We get our eyes back on the Lord and off of our circumstances. And we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, filled with joy, knowing that you don't have to embrace the shame, you don't have to celebrate it. Oh yay, wow, I get to go through it. No, no, we despise the shame. But we endure it, because his joy is my joy. He endured, I can endure. The shame, the humiliation, the pain, the beatings didn't slow Jesus down. He endured all the way to the end, which brings us to number eight. Notice, we look unto Jesus, author and finisher of our faith, joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and finally, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the final stage. Jesus finished his race. (laughs) And we too find ourselves in the final stage and we will finish the race. Jesus now, right now, of all that he experienced in life, is in a place of authority. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's already been mentioned many times. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Hebrews chapter one, verse 13. Hebrews chapter eight, verse one. Peter mentions it in first Peter chapter three, verse 22. Jesus has sat down. That speaks of him not only being finished, but also being in a place of authority. He sat down permanently. He has nothing else to do. And when Jesus went to the cross, he endured all that it demanded. He despised the shame. And listen, this is so important, this phrase. I had it written down exactly. I'm going to read it exactly have it on my notes, because I want it to be a seed planted in your heart of all the difficult things you face, all the trials in the world today, all the issues that are coming against you, and, and all these issues you don't like, you don't like it at work, you don't like what's going on at home. Listen, this is the phrase that, I, that the Lord gave me for this for as I observed Jesus. Listen, He despised the shame and he accepted it willingly. That may be what is waiting for you to get back in the race. You need to accept it willingly. Don't misunderstand my words. I chose them very carefully. I didn't say you need to like it willingly. I didn't say you need to love it willingly. I didn't say you need to fight it. I believe Jesus gives us the example here in Hebrews 12 to accept it willingly. Why? Because we trust God. God, by faith. Why? Because the great sin we have to lay aside is unbelief. And unbelief comes as we no longer choose to trust God at his word. God said things would get worse, but he also said things would get better. <laughs> God said it's going to be a troubling time, but he also said I will come again to deliver you and rescue you and Take all things as we were reading, as as actually as we were singing, I'm gonna work them all together for good. All things are working together. I'm a potter, I'm I'm a potter and an artist, God says. You're the canvas and the clay. And it's gonna turn out so beautiful, even in the midst of deep pain. God is asking you to run the race joyfully. These things have to go in order for you to run. Your eyes must be fixed in order to run. God says, follow your friend, follow your savior, follow your Lord, and run drafting behind him. And you'll finish all the way to the end because Jesus promised he's coming for us. Just get in the race, church. And I think the big word for us today is you gotta get your eyes back on the Lord. Stop buying into the lies of this world, this culture, the way of this world, the schemes of this world, the hope of this world, it leaves people empty and get back to the place of being the church, trusting God, loving God, serving God, and being the salt and the light in a very dark, tasteless culture, so dark and so tasteless. We've all seen, I'm sure we have testimonies as well, like where we bought into the world's lies and they let us down. And we bought into it and we thought, oh, this is for sure going to be. No, 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 not going to be. Because God, he wants us to be like Abraham. As we learn in chapter 11, he wants us to be those men and women looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. And so, Father, we want that in our lives it's easier to teach than it is to live. But I know as you, as we abide in you, you enable us and empower us And help us to run the race that's set before us. And I pray that over our church. I know that you've spoken in all our services. I know that your word has gone forth. And I know we're like in such an upside down world, but it's always been upside down since sin. Always. I think of that time where uh, that leader, I forget who it was, would see the church come to town and they said, oh no, look, Those that are turning the world upside down have come here too. It's always been upside down. May we be the men and women you called us to be. That this would not be a hobby or we're just dabbling in things Christian, but that we would really walk a faith-filled life. I pray for those right now, Lord. I pray for those that are so caught up in their own opinions, they're so caught up in their own attitudes, that they are not worshiping you anymore. They're just not in a place of worship. They just aren't enjoying you. They're just so miserable and upset and they can even be miserable to be around. And I pray you just bring them back to simplicity that they have left their first love. If they would just remember from where they have fallen, repent and repeat the first works, you get them back in the race, back in the race. And I pray for that pastor and his wife today the pain and the shame and the hurt that sin has brought. I pray, God, that you would comfort them this morning and that you would help them along the road of restoration. I know uh, because they're so prominent, they have a lot of great friends in their life, so I just pray that that would be a wonderful work of restoration. And I pray for my pastor friend whose wife was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. So young, too. And I pray for a friend, a deep friend of this ministry whose mom passed away this week. And he hasn't been able, well, he wasn't able to visit her in the hospital because of COVID. And it's just been hard, Lord. I pray, God, for those wrestling and struggling. We're all, and, and I, Lord, our, the church is so distracted with things. And, and there's so many hurting people, so many that need attention. Even here in our own church, Lord, give us a sensitivity like never before to love and to serve. Not to be distracted. It doesn't matter what the popular thing is. Whatever everybody's into, Lord. We just need to look unto you. And you'll lead us and guide us. And you'll help us along the way. In Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.